Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today we ask the question, is the iron ore trapdoor opening? Iron ore has been in a well-established downtrend since June 2021. Today we're going to explore whether it'll get back below the US $50 levels of 2017 when BHP was trading at less than $20 a share. More importantly, if this downtrend does continue, how can you take advantage of it? Today we have our commodity expert, chief strategist and co-founder of Nucleus Wealth, David Llewellyn-Smith. Dave, welcome. Do you know Sam? Good to be here. Excellent to have you. Today, as always, we have Nucleus Wealth's other co-founder and chief investment officer, Damien Klassen. Damo, welcome. Hey, Sam. Okay. Good, thanks. My name's Sam Kerr. I'm a senior financial advisor at Nucleus Wealth. Just a reminder, the information in this podcast is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at newkillswealth.com forward slash contact and you can book a call with me to have a no obligation chat. We are live every Thursday at 12.30 Australian Eastern Time, so jump on the Nucleus Wealth YouTube channel and you can ask any questions that come to mind and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. You can also follow us on your preferred podcast platform as our show is available on all the majors. And I just want to let uh, some of the viewers know that are Sydney-based, we're going to be in Sydney around the 18th of August this month. Uh, we are a finalist for the IMAP uh, Innovation Awards. So that's the institution uh, Institute of Managed Account Professionals. Uh, so, uh, yeah, for uh, some of the innovations we have uh, recently done, well, we've actually won this award once before, but some of the recent innovations, uh, we have around 100 different screens and tilts, which I'm sure some of the viewers are well aware of. Uh, also, we're now offering fractional shares and also lower fees. Uh, so if anyone's in Sydney around the 18th of this month and uh, wants to have a meeting with us, just uh, get in touch with us via the usual channels and also wish us luck as well. Um, so that's pretty much uh, the intros out of the way. So Damo, over to you just to get the ball rolling and give us some context. Yeah, sure. So um, we've had a, a raft of Chinese data out recently. Um, just just uh, you know, in the last week, there's been a whole bunch of ones, imports and exports um, down dramatically from the prior year. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, the CPI and, and PPI, which is a, the inflation rate for uh, consumers and the inflation rate for producers, come in um, with deflation in, in both cases. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in China about the, um, about the stimulus packages, and they... And we've been pretty consistent in terms of saying we don't think there's actually a, a stimulus here. Like we've been talking about, you know, there's there's rumours and there's there's suggestions and there's maybe, um, but the the stimulus packages um, that that I think people have been expecting for the last six or twelve months really just haven't appeared, and uh, it's actually started to look a little bit more dire. And so we thought it's well worth a, a a bit of a catch up and, and talk about. Um, I guess the most um, the most pointed part of the that uh, that end is is the iron ore. And and where that's going to uh, what that's going to mean, and so um, yeah, Dave, over to you for uh, some of your thoughts. Okay, so <clears throat> excuse me. Um, uh, so the agenda for this 
this potty is uh, we're going to take a look at the Chinese economy uh, and what I'm describing now as uh, depression economics gripping China, uh, which you know does give you some measure of how serious we think the problems are. Then we'll take a look at the iron ore market, uh, how the two are going to in, interplay, uh, and then you know come around to market implications and asset allocation. Uh, so without further ado, we'll jump in and, and take a look at what's going wrong in China. Um, so, you know, we've been returning to this subject pretty regularly for about two years. Um, uh, that subject being, uh, you know, a slowdown in China and in particular, the centre of it being a property bust. Um, now, uh, we, we're all probably pretty aware that for the last 20 years, China has uh, undergone this extraordinary property boom following, you know, so various liberalisation policies around the millennium, uh, which is focused very much on building property um, and driven by their very, very large urbanisation programs So moving lots of people from the country, former farmers, uh, into the cities uh, and where they, you know, have been building these these tens of thousands of uh, apartment blocks to house everybody. And in the development, in development economics, this is pretty classic kind of development pattern uh, where you're getting your, your uh, population into urban centres where they can be more productive, which drives, you know, a lot of income and GDP growth for a very long time. It's a, it's a, you know, a kind of guaranteed way to grow um, for a long period of time. Um, however, uh, things started to go badly wrong uh, in in the uh, the property build out in China. You know, well, quite a while ago, but uh, in particular, um, after you know some pretty serious overbuilding developed in the last decade, uh, the government. Um, as we kind of got through COVID, decided to, to sort of, uh, you know, again, try to address the leverage that had built up in the, in this enormous property construction boom that it had had going for 20 years. Uh, and we, you, you know, listeners may recall the, the phrase, the three red lines, which were imposed by Beijing on property developers. And they were basically leverage caps on their development sector, which operated at extraordinary leverage. Um, uh, you know, typically, you know, a good one is like leverage of 10, what, 10 times income uh, uh, demo, like versus one in 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 Western markets. Um, uh, well, sorry, in terms of the, the debt side, yeah, no, it's more, it's actually, well, so, so, so if you look at debt to market cap, which is sort of like a or debt to total total value of it, so, so you add up the, the amount of equity and the amount of debt, and that sort of gives you a better picture. It is a little bit sensitive in that when share prices move, it can it can change this ratio, but it's it's probably a better um, it's a better measure than than looking at the book values. And so basically, for every dollar of equity, shareholders' equity you've got in in China, there's ten dollars worth of debt. And this is not just one company or one or two bad apples. This is like you look through the top twenty. Um, it is pretty consistent across all of them. Is to yeah. that sort of one to ten, or you know, maybe for some of them it's five, and other ones it's twenty. But yeah, it's it's big. And then if you if you talk about say the US developers, for every dollar of equity, there's seven cents worth of worth of debt. So 
It's yeah. just a yeah. It's going to completely the opposite direction in a completely other way. And 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 a typical company, um, you know, for every dollar of equity, you might have, um, uh, you know, you might have twenty five cents of debt if you if you could take on a if you're a company that could take on you know it was actually stable earnings and all that type of stuff, which developers don't tend to be. Developers, why you only see a small amount is because developers they go through cycles. We have a building cycle, and, and they're volatile companies. And so, um, you know, developer goes bust is not a headline that that people are surprised to to hear. Whereas, you know, if you saw a a telco go bust or, or something like that, people would be you know a lot more surprised about that because they're a lot more of a stable industry. Yeah. So, so rather, <clears throat> rather than say debt, we should perhaps say liabilities, right? Because um, a lot of this is either to to, uh, like counterparty uh, trade. No, that, that that's just the debt. That's the there's oh, a, there's the then debt. on top of that. Oh, on top okay. of that, then you have yeah. On top of that, then you have the amount they loan that they owe to um to people who have prepaid, and and that's probably better at looking in terms of their sales. Like the the amount they've lent to people they've prepaid to is about um 130 percent of their annual sales. So basically, okay. if they build for the next 15 months and don't take a dollar worth of um dollars worth of more sales. By the end of it, they'll have they'll have built all the properties that the people have already paid them, given them the money for, um, and then that's and and so that's the um, uh, whereas in the US again that's that's like a fraction of of, of like it's like less than one percent of sales, whereas this is one hundred and thirty percent, and then finally you have the um, the suppliers, and so typically you know most people be you know sixty days is like the limit, you know mo most companies are somewhere around forty five days worth of worth of um, uh, the bills that you've accrued and 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 are owing um, in in China is over 180 days, so it's more than six yeah. months. And that's not just suppliers, actually. That's suppliers and staff and your own staff. So there's lots of these places where their own staff haven't been paid the full entitlements for for ages. So okay, and again, so, so it's, this is not like a there's one or two bad apples that's and one or two big bad apples that's making the whole lot of them look bad. It is pretty consistent across the entire top 20. Yeah. So and and there are of course hundreds, so yeah. if not thousands, and 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 I dare say the top twenty may be the the, the better end of the leverage spectrum. Yeah, and, and and the other thing, well, the other thing to come over the top of this is is that this is what we know about. Like yes. usually when these things happen, and and you actually see genuine blowups, like the debt comes out from all over the place. You never knew about. Oh yeah, there's a you know they've guaranteed something here, or they've borrowed from. Somebody's somebody yeah. else over there, and it's hidden behind a structure and whatever it is. Yeah. There is almost certainly a a significant part of that that would, you know, uh, I'd be so very very surprised if there wasn't at least twenty five percent more debt out there. And, and it could it be another? Could it be double the debt? Yeah, sure, it could be. So in terms of the just guarantees and, and other stuff. So why this matters is that it's kind of become public knowledge in China. Uh, because you know, uh, once these leverage caps were put in place, the developers faced a lot more scrutiny in terms of delivering upon their undertakings to buyers, uh, and various federal local governments and stuff started freezing escrow accounts, for instance, where you know these prepaid sales for apartments, where that's where that that. That money was kept, whereas previously developers had just accessed that as slush funds and stuff. So, if you look at the chart we've just provided here, you can get a sense of just how dramatic this 
this crash in credibility of the pro of the development sector in China has been with starts where they have fallen over 50% in the last couple of years from this super boom. They're still, by the way, way too high, and so are sales. Um, but, uh, you know, and there are huge discrepancies in this data, as you can see here as well. Sales and starts don't, don't gel with completions at all. Uh, and if you actually add up the gap between them, it's like 75 million missing apartments. And so it's it's really kind of the Wild West we're talking here. Um, but this, anyway, this crazy segment that has driven so much of the fast catch-up growth in China uh, is in serious trouble. It's, it is in a debt deflation, basically. It's unwinding. Um, a balance sheet recession, if you like. The implications of it are all by itself, before we move on to other other headwinds, are that things like monetary policy, easing from property markets, which we've had successive rounds of already, are simply pushing on a string at this point. That is, they've stopped working. People don't want to borrow. They don't trust the developers. And then on top of all of this, the urbanisation pulse has gone, has, has well and truly peaked and has started to fall away. And people are aware of that. And so we're really into what it looks like a long cycle unwind here. And actually, could I just add as well, um, you know, it's a, it's a great idea to get, if you're, if you're a developer, uh, to get your customers to pay up front. Like, how nice is that? You know, in Australia or, or any other country, if you can get a 10% deposit, fantastic, you know, and then, then off you go and you build your, your, your apartment, then you try, then you get the money for it after. In China, they've actually managed to get people, it's become institutionalized and, and normalized to pay the entire amount up front. Um, yeah. The problem and now if, is. And if you accept that discrepancy between sales and completions is hmm. somewhat real. Yeah. Then the developers may have been sitting on billions and billions of dollars for a decade. Of stuff that they never built exactly uh, you know they've been um, spending spending that up on, <laughs> on lavish lifestyle yeah. well it's a bit like your credit card isn't it it's actually saying there's a there's a there's a wonderful if you get yourself a new credit card you can have a wonderful glorious month where you spend and spend and spend and now you're now you're you know the rest spending the rest of your life trying to pay the thing off yeah. um where when you need to, to and, and that's effectively what's happened with this is that it's it's a wonderful, glorious period where you get people to pay for the entire apartment up front. But once you work, once you work out, actually, we've already spent that money on, you know, whatever fast cars and 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 trips overseas and and funneling money out of the company wherever we could. Now we actually have to go and build that thing and and, and pay it back. And you know what? People are, people are no longer want to put up a full amount because no. of exactly this reason. And so well, if you I if mean, you're going to back to basically money, counterparty risk has just run riot here. Yeah. So people don't want to, don't trust them, don't want to buy it. Um, prices are falling as well, and and so and then urbanisation has stalled. So, you know, the, the the entire rationale for getting rich and property in China is in is in deep reverse. So, so the first point to make in terms of depression economics gripping China is is that um, you know they are pushing on a string in monetary terms. It's it, it's. You know, been very difficult to get households to resume borrowing in mortgages, uh, and you know the latest round of stimulus will try again, um, but it will almost certainly fail. We think because the counterparty risk between buyers and 
and providers is just too large. The government stepped in the middle and is trying to fund the developers to make completions, but with all the other factors, it's just too much, uh, as well as just affordability is ridiculously difficult for you know young Chinese and household formation is starting to reverse um, or certainly slowing, slowing rapidly with you know the unwind of urbanisation. So really various story. So on top of that, um, this was a kind of only half this kind of construction, we'll call it a bubble. It was basically a bubble for the last 10 years at least. Um, China itself told us this before the GFC. Its premier was telling us that it built too much, um, too much investment. And, you know, the second part of it was local government uh, local governments that were selling land to developers and then using a lot of that money to build infrastructure. And so it was this combined, uh, you know, construction boom, you know, running wild for the last 10 years. And, of course, developers now have, with all these leverage caps, can't get debt. They are, on the other hand, having to fulfil their obligations so their, their cash balances in escrow accounts, you know, aren't what they thought they were. So they simply don't have the funding um, to buy land. So land banks are starting to unwind. And so the local governments don't have the funding to build the infrastructure anymore. And they also borrowed $9 trillion over the last 10 years or so. Uh, and they've stopped publishing the data even as of last to year. To build this dodgy infrastructure that nobody uses, uh, like absolute shimmering, wonderful infrastructure, but the country's still too poor for, the, for it to really be economic for the underpinning um, savings and income of households, and so. But having, having said that, you used to be really productive. So the, when it first started, your, your first airport oh, you opened was horrendous. Yeah. Was terrifically. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. yeah your second one, when the first one was only at eighty percent, it's like, yeah, okay, it was useful having a second airport. And now you're up to your fourth or fifth airport. It's like, well, yeah. the other ones aren't really being used. Well, and it's not. And therefore, it's not generating income to cover its debt, is it? And so, no. the, it's just mis mis allocation of, of capital and. You know, it's a drag, longer-term drag on the economy. So, so that uh, has started to generate some bond defaults as well in terms of only very small amounts, but it has started uh, in local government special funding vehicles and things have started to show some stress. Uh, and so, you know, that's the next kind of um, domino, if you like, of, of in this in this depression economic story. Um, of you know debt deterioration and debt deflation. Uh, uh, now you know Beijing is you know, you know probably have to step in there at some point as well and do some some debt swaps and things with the local governments. But we're nowhere near any of that yet. We think it'll unwind more first. Then a third factor at the moment is you know China's in the middle of an exports bust. Um, you know post COVID plus you know all the rate hikes in developed economies and slowing consumption. And it's a pretty decent-looking exports bust. Uh, so, you know, that the external economy is also slowing quite swiftly. So there's a lot of big problems here, and we see it most clearly in deflation swamping the economy, which is another part of depression economics, um, where, you know, you've got all this bad this debt, you've got a lot of, of it starting to sour, and if you add deflation to it as well, then you can't get your interest rates down enough that, you know, real interest rates actually rise and the debt gets more expensive, not less. And so you're into a debt deflation cycle, unwind cycle. Now, we've seen this before. 
We saw a similar version of this, much smaller in the US, leading up to the GFC. Probably a better example is what happened to Japan as its development model came to a conclusion in the late 80s. And, you know, however, in the US case and the Japanese case, they had certain advantages that enabled them to kind of uh, manage their way through the debt restructuring process, uh, you know, in, in a way that didn't lead to actual depression, if you like. So unemployment probably got what in the in the US and the GFC got to what, 11 12%, something like that, I think from memory. Um, Japanese unemployment was always low through its bust. By, by Western standards. Um, and that, so, you know, part of the two sort of components of, of what Ray Dalio calls for, for those examples as beautiful deleveragings um, was they managed to slash their interest rates to zero, print money, and crash their currencies. And those things, you know, help you adjust uh, your debt because you, you're, in a sense, you're exporting your problem, right? You're, you're increasing your your domestic demand with a lower currency, um, raising your inflation, and so you're helping to reduce the debt burden that you're trying to get rid of. Unfortunately for China, um, it's kind of stuck in what we call the impossible trinity, which is a, this macro notion that you can only control two of three variables in your currency, interest rates, and capital flows. Only can drop two of the three at any one moment, and you know, arguably, if 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 what was happening in China now were happening in a developed economy, you would already have interest rates at zero. You know, um, the currency would be in free fall. Um, you'd already be entering, you know, these various pulling these various macro levers to make the the deleveraging process easier. Um, China can't do it. It can't cut interest rates because it's terrified of crashing its currency for two reasons. One, it would see capital outflow uh, and savings ripped out of its banks, um, you know, because it has immense, immense household savings. And those banks would then be under pressure on both sides, with, you know, with um, bad debts coming in on one side and, and a, you know, a run on deposits on the other. And, of course, a falling currency would also... Um, really piss off the rest of the world and lead to, you know, probably trade backlashes from the US and, and even Europe. Uh, so at the moment, you know, that, that, that means that China is kind of forced to deleverage this the hard way and do, do all this deflation internally. And we're starting to see that in really difficult uh, problems for a government. So for instance, um, you know, failing domestic demand, it has produced 21.3% or 23.3% uh, youth unemployment. <clears throat> and that's what they're telling us, right? So, you know, we're daily getting reports also that China is pretty much trying to hide everything that's going on in its economy from everybody. There are fat wires coming out saying you can't talk about, you know, anyone who mentions deflation is going to have their organs auctioned off. Um, and, and so we know we know already, like that, and they're actually telling us that, that youth unemployment is 21%. So it's probably far worse. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, this is 
you know, a, a very difficult situation to manage for China. Um, like, I, I've today started calling it something of a reverse GFC. So, you know, as described previously, just, just a few moments ago, in the case of Japan or the US, because they could, you know, because their, their debt problem um, allowed them to slash rates, print money, crash currency, they could export their problems, uh, you know, to the rest of the world that had to absorb some of the adjustment. But with, without that possibility, China's got to absorb this all internally and all these debt shots have got to be rationalised the hard way. So, you know, these crashing um, developers uh, will sooner or later, because they have a lot of debt to local banks, well, those bad debts are going to roll into the banks in China as well. Uh, and so we're going to see some some bankruptcies, I think, in, in regional banks, probably not at the, the national level with the, the big policy banks, but they'll, they'll be forced to lend into those regional banks and there'll be big counterparty risk. And then, as said, you know, there'll have to be a lot of debt swaps with the local governments and the, and the, the national government as well. So, <coughs> excuse me, this, 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 this is, a, this, as I'm calling this the reverse GFC because it's kind of the same dynamics that have transpired in these previous ma major shocks, but it has to be all absorbed internally in terms of debt, but it will roll out outwards in other ways. So, for instance, growth is going to crash already has will crash further um you know we're going to see commodities demand come off you know probably sharply intermittently stimulated but um sharply and in trend terms just keep coming off and so it, you know it is a kind of global crisis that comes out of it but it won't be you know the same as the gfc in the sense that you you won't just see this this major kind of um, counterparty banking crisis that rolls out of china because they own the banks and, and so that's probably containable um so that, that gives you some idea of how difficult um the china uh, the chinese the management of this adjustment is for china uh, and of course because it's centred on property and infrastructure, it is integral to to steel production one and commodity demand second. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So you know when you're talking steel, you well when you're doing property and infrastructure, the first cab off the rank is steel, but it will it'll affect base metals as well, um, and already is. Um, you know, and things like copper and, and other inputs into steel. Um, so it's, it's a broader story, but today we're going to focus on iron ore because, you know, this is really, really where the rubber hits the road, if you'll, if you'll pardon the mixed messages, uh, mixed metaphor. So, um, so, so actually, so David, just one question before you get in there, because I think the first thing, um, you know, most people, we've obviously been talking the story for a while and and um you know we spoke about in the past that they've had three or four goes at this and they keep pulling out and deciding not to so the real thing uh, you know the real the real question with me for for china has always been not um will it happen because because you know i think there's a um you know it's 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 inherently um the, these imbalances will need to be resolved at some point um the question is when and and i guess and why now in terms of the, the yeah. timing yeah. yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, why now is simply, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
and without being too facetious, is, is that that's the side of bed that Xi Jinping got out of two years ago, right? I mean, he decided he'd had enough of leverage in the development sector. Like, yeah, it was wildly out of hand, but it was wildly out of hand in 2018 when when they stimulated. It was wildly out of hand in 2015 when they stimulated. In 2012, and even the GFC, it was already, you know, excessive. So um, it's just a decision uh, probably coming out of the fact that he's now God King rather than President. Um, when he When he's been elected for life, that he feels... You know, he's probably cleaned out enough enemies that he feels he can fashion the economy after after his image. And he has from the outset, from from his rise, you know, said houses are, are for living in, not for speculation. He does, he believes, apparently believes in, uh, you know, supply side investment as the driver of growth, but productive supply side investment as the driver of growth. Um, he wants to see, you know, Chinese capital allocation get more efficient and get rid of this, you know, kind of crazy overbuilding. Um, and he he doesn't ever give any money to consumers or households. Um, uh, and and so, uh, you know, I guess he just reached the point where he decided that will do. We're done and, and we're coming out of it. Now, well, and- what, why now, though? Um and, and can it be reversed is the yeah. question. Because the other thing I guess I'd add to it as well is just in terms of the, the overall thing is the debt the debt was accelerating as well. So there was an ex- – like when, when you first start this, when you first become <clears throat> un, un, um, – when it first becomes uh, uneconomic is like, okay, well, we, we, we took this debt out. We had interest rates of 6% and, and we were earning a 15% return. Everything's fine. And then that return goes down, 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 down as the projects get worse and eventually you're earning a 5% return. And you're paying six percent on your debt, but it's only one percent per year, so you don't you can just ignore it. But then it, I guess, as it got lower and lower and lower, that's part of the thing is this debt burden. It, it's now to get the same amount of growth that you could have got ten years ago. You're going to need to probably put ten times the amount of capital into yeah. that. Yeah. Nonetheless, I, I think he, if he if he had have moved earlier to remove the red lines, he probably could have kicked it for another cycle. Yeah. Um. But yeah. you know, at the same time. Urbanisation is slowing quite fast, and so persisting with it was always going to create a, a larger and larger gulf between, uh, you know, the boom and the underpinnings. So, um, you know, uh, I think the p- most pointed question at this at this point, given especially we've just been through the Politburo meeting, and markets have had wild, wildly inflated hopes of stimulus, is can they reverse this? And I don't think they can. Yeah. Like that's why I'm 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 here to present this today is because I actually think this is past the tipping point. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's exactly where I'm getting to. This is yeah. There's this point with all these things where, um, you know, let's take the Irish government for example. When when the GFC happened and that fell over, they desperately wanted the housing boom to continue. Like of that's course. that was, and they were trying to get it to continue. They're trying to put yes. stuff in, but eventually, but if it passes a tipping point, and and they probably stopped it from happening, you know, several years earlier by 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 putting more policies in to make the bubble bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. But eventually, once it starts going the wrong way, and everyone starts taking a step back and going, and and you know the the emperor finally can be seen to have no clothes. Um, you know, telling everyone that's clothed is is no longer um an option. And so well, yeah, that's yeah. the question is has I mean, China, Mark, Mark, why, why is China past that point? I guess now. Well, I mean, I think it's. I think the counterparty risk between developers and buyers is, ha, has tipped into irreparable. 
Um, and I think the urbanisation story being loose is is just you know turn turn investment into China's property into nonsense. And then the the risk of Xi Jinping himself, I think, here is material. You know, and his capriciousness in in you know kicking the can on this one minute and then shutting it down again, which he's done like three or four times since 2011. So, um, but this time he was much more determined. Now, Marcus got very excited after the Politburo meeting when the phrase you know, "property for is for living in, not for speculation" was dropped. Right, and you know there is some push to reduce. You know, kind of macro prudential limits on property buying for like second buyers, um, also to reduce down payments and stuff for first home buyers. Lots of stuff happening at the local level um, to make property cheaper. What I'd point to uh, for why I'm very skeptical that any of this is going to work beyond maybe short term sugar hits is the reopening of China after COVID. Now, COVID, China was locked down in COVID, what, for a year? Um, property buying was really, really suppressed and difficult. Uh, it came roaring out of the gates and reopened. Everyone got sick for a bit and, you know, so many died, etc. and it was fine. And then off property went and it had like a six-week boom, right? And then it went straight back down again and has been falling ever since, all year. Now, if, you're, if, if that amount of pent-up demand coming out of a, year, of a year of being locked up away from property can only give you a, a, a six-week buying boom afterwards, then something's snapped psychologically in the market. Like, people are not coming back. And I, I just don't think that there's the, the levers are there to do it. Perhaps if they really, you know, slashed interest rates to zero, they could stimulate a bit more activity. I don't know. Uh, we won't know because they can't do it. Um, <clears throat> but I think basically the market's broken and I think their tools, owing to their choices within the impossible trinity, make, mean that their tools are too limited to fix it. So the, the base case is that this just keeps going. This just keeps getting worse. And what stimulus will be about is stopping it from turning unruly. So... You know, Beijing will have to do enough spending at the local level to keep some construction going. They're already doing that, funding the developers, you know, to complete um, stuff. They'll have to start funding the local governments as well on the same basis as their, you know, special purpose vehicles start to go under. Um, and, you know, so they'll be drip feeding this money into in what are ineffective bailouts um, to stop the thing from unwinding completely because they can't allow that. It's so enormous that it's way too big to fail, but it's also way too big to save. Right. So they will, you know, in a sense, they realise they simply have to let this thing deflate. But um, so I, I think that's what stimulus now is. Stimulus is 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 a you know a life vest to stop it sinking. And drowning and taking down the entire Chinese economy with it, which is also a risk case. I don't think it's it's the base case. The, the base case is they keep dripping it, dripping the dollars, the the, the yuan in there to stop it from from dramatically sinking. Um, but that's what stimulus is now. So those are my reasons for why this is now now done. Um, so we'll come back and have a look at iron ore in a minute. I think Sam's got a message.
for you. We'll be back with the investment insights very shortly. Nucleus Wealth is an active and passive investment manager. If you like what you're hearing and want some help with the investing, we can do it for you via our active portfolios. Our tactical and core portfolios use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage your investment. We blend tactical portfolios to offer our combinations of international shares, Australian shares, government bonds, and cash. We vary the asset allocation with the goal of protecting your capital in times of market uncertainty. We also have active international and Australian share portfolios. These are chosen using our quality and value investment philosophy. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. So guys, we've had a question come through from Robert Miller, uh, which I'm sure is on many people's minds. Uh, so Robert's asking, how does Nucleus Wealth get reliable data on China and therefore make reliable conclusions? Uh, and then he goes on to say, it sounds very, very bad, but how are you, how are you getting this reliable data? Um, the answer from my perspective, and Dave will, um, I guess, answer because he, he looks at a lot of this as well, is that um, the data is not reliable and um, you've got to deal with it as best you can. Now, I think in, in a certain extent, um, the, some of the trends can, can give you information in terms of <clears throat> um, where we're seeing, um, you know, for example, those those property ones, we know that we know they're wrong. We know that they just don't add up. Like the, the you know, it's it's effectively you've got um, A plus B equals C, and 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 they, and A plus B does not equal C. You know, A is A is ten, B is fifty, and, and C is five. You know, and you just like just, the whole thing just doesn't add up. And so, um, but but we can see the trend in A, we can see the trend in B, and we can see the trend in C. And so we can say, okay, there's probably some truth within those, and try to work it out. And then we can play with that equation and go, okay, well, let's say C is wrong and A and B is true. What does that mean? Okay, what happens if if C is right and and, and B is the, the the missing one? You know, what happens if it's a and so you can sort of have a look at the different scenarios and try and extrapolate out. But the answer, the, the real answer is, look, even in even in developed economies, um, and with with um, people who are trying to present what they think is the real data as opposed to what they think other people want to see. Uh, this stuff is all estimates and that gets revised. And quite often, um, you know, at the start of recessions, we'll get this one set of data come out, say employment data or something like that. And they'll say, oh, yeah, the, you know, employment was up. And then a month later, they'll actually revise it down and go, oh, maybe it was actually flat. And then three months after, they'll go, well, actually, now we've got all the data in. Um, we can see that actually the, the, the employment data we said, you know, at, at the time was up, was actually down by, by, by a significant amount. And so that happens in every economy. So China's one step worth. And the other thing I wanted to highlight is that China, the data. Um, one of the things we know about how it's presented is that um, you know there's an, there's, a, there's a saying that whenever you start to measure something, um, then it becomes less useful because people will try and game the measure. Now, I don't care what my contribution to GDP is. You know, I care about my income and I compare about my performance, investment performance, and all these things like that where I'm getting measured and and and, and scored. I couldn't care less what my contribution to GDP is. And and I'm and I'm, I'm guessing Sam and and David. As well, that you know, whatever whatever they do for whatever you guys do for GDP doesn't matter. In China, most local governments do get measured on their what their contribution to, to GDP is, and so they game the figures. So in the same way that we see, um, uh, you know, a, a we have this thing called um, uh, yeah end of year financial sale, end of financial year sale, and and what is an end of financial year sale? We're trying to we're trying to dress our books up. We've got a big inventory. We're trying to run our inventory down. And bring bring in the cash so that when we turn to the auditors, we go, hey, look, we you know we haven't got any. We hardly got any inventory. Look at all this cash. What a great business we are. 
Like it's actually we, we sell it the fact that we're we're gaming it. And and think of that that that's effectively what's happening in China for GDP is that local governments are measured by that. And so if there's a way they can shift things around to try and get their GDP to look better, they will. And that's and one of the things we really noticed in the data is that um, say this property data, it all sort of matched up until 2006, 2007, and then it gradually got a little bit further, worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And now it's miles apart because partly because I think people have been gaming the system about how they announce things and making it a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse every time. It's like, well, you know, I overstated numbers by 5% last quarter, and so now I have to overstate them by 5.5%. And now I have to overstate them by, five, by 6%. Otherwise, you know, and, and nobody can ever finally admit to what the, the, the true thing is. So yeah, so so mainly about trend, but but acknowledging that um, we have to look at every single bit of data out of China with with even more skepticism than we usually do. Yeah, and I, <coughs> excuse me on that. I mean, even the even the publicly listed developers, you know, like oh. the one the ones that are defaulting on bonds and things, half of them have stopped reporting. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, then, you know, the idea that there's that there's accounting transparency in in this sector and in the, even in the Chinese equity markets, a joke. Yeah, and, and one of the key things that uh, you might have seen the, 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 this this whole issue about Chinese companies being listed in New York and everything like that is that it's just it's the actual structure of it's really weird in terms of it's it's a, it's a vague promise from a Chinese company to some some company in the Bahamas that they'll they'll you know provide some 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 input into this company into this entity that's listed on on the New York Stock Exchange. But one of the issues is it, to be listed in in uh, most Western markets and particularly New York is you're meant to be have all your accounts audited by um, you know a a, a, re, a recognised auditor, and China won't allow um, you know Western auditors to come in and have a look at these companies. And so um, you know, even those companies that we, we as said, David they've just stopped reporting, but but we never really trusted their accounts anyway because we never knew what you know we, we yeah. don't trust we don't trust trust Western auditors who who are in theory yeah only slightly um, so, the, so the data the data is definitely dodgy yeah uh, but so trend is helpful but I think you know ex the experience of watching this data over you know like nearly twenty years um it's a bit. We kind of take the approach of like Lee Kuang did, you know, with the Lee Kuang index, where he says, "No, look at GDP. Look at these these three or four, you know, more reliable measures of activity that will tell you what's really going on in terms of levels of activity activity in the economy." So you can get a a sense of of you know the correlation between you know macro data and certain you know, objective correlatives, if you'll pardon the phrase. So, like, I've watched property starts and charted them against iron ore. I haven't provided that one here. But there's always been a very close correlation, except for right now. Um, you know, and I think that we can discuss that disjunction going forward. I think that's partly because the, the government has stepped in to, to boost completions uh, and a couple of other factors. Um, and, and but you, 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 can, you can look at um, objective, much more objective data measures that are, are second derivative to the stuff that you're looking at, and that will tell you, you know, how how accurate or not your trends are, or at least, yeah. it, it, you know, it, it informs uh, a conclusion. Yeah. And, and the other thing, you know, from 20-odd years of looking at Chinese data 
and just monitoring what's going on is that they go through these periods where they they crack down on on um, information and and what's out there. Like they for a while there, uh, Stan Stan Hugh from Rio got locked up for um, you know for basically there's a certainly some people were suggesting all he was doing is collecting normal normal economic data about competitors and it was it was dim spying and that, that they go through these phases of when they when they really crack down on it. And I just want to say that they're going through a phase right now, as David said, of cracking down on the data. They never crack down on the data when everything's great. It's never no, like we're no. trying to hide how well everything's going over here. You know, exactly that's never right. the case. It's always the opposite. Yeah, yeah. So that's one part. And yeah. the other, the other really interesting one is that on that whole G thing is that now they've got investment banks and stockbrokers and 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 um, you know private equity and those type of people have to do like monthly study sessions where they all sit around. It's like a Bible study session. You get the the, the Bible from G. And and everyone sits around and tries to interpret what he's you know what he's telling people like that's a mandate at, at all these companies now, and so um, it's uh, you know it's it, we like we talk about it being driven by the cult of a person, but we're not being um, you know it's, it's not it's not hyperbole. There is a genuine issue going on here where um, uh, yeah where where things are different. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's flip over to iron ore and see see how we can translate this this um, depression economic story. Um, so first, we're going to have a look at demand, um, uh, and basically, over the last six months, Chinese steel demand has been been remarkably good. Um, it's up twelve million tons uh, year on year, largely driven by exports. Uh, whenever you get a Chinese bust of sorts and falling steel prices, the exports immediately go up a lot because they start dumping their overproduction onto global markets, and that's what we've seen in the first half. Uh, now, why this is potentially a problem in the second half of the year is uh, authorities are pretty much committed to, to falling steel production uh, for the next few years, like it's it peaked in 2020 uh, and fell in 21 and 22. Um, if you know what they generally do is is put a cap on steel output, basically in the second half of the year to ensure that the overall year falls. Now, because we had quite a strong first half, for us to get into an annual target below 2022. Um, you know, an output cap would have to cut nearly 60 million tonnes of steel output uh, in the second half. So, you know, that's that's a huge risk hanging over the market, and there are lots of rumours that it's coming. We've seen a number of provinces do it individually already, only small ones, but, you know, they have done these national caps in, in the past. Um, you know, and partly it's part of the whole kind of rationalization program but it's also about carbon output and things so um so it's likely that we're going to see some kind of cap and so that, that's going to be quite an impact from from an official standpoint in terms of demand now uh, irrespective of that um i think that the, the property bust and the infrastructure bust, which so far the infrastructure bust basically hasn't happened. We've actually been in an infrastructure boom for the last probably six or eight months. After last year, they ramped up the quotas for infrastructure at the local government level. This year, however, they haven't. And 
Um, so there's a baked in fall of about 5% from infrastructure funding, and it's actually a lot bigger than that because a lot of that funding is the old fund, funding prior funding rather than actually turning into investment. So there is going to be a material infrastructure downdraft in the second half, as well as you know what looks like the property completions starting to tail off towards what's happened in sales and starts. Uh, and so, you know, whether we get the output cap or not, I'm, you know, my gut's telling me that we're going to see underlying weak demand. Um, and so, you know, those two things together, you know, apparent demand, which would be hit by an official cap, an cap and underlying demand, which would be uh, weak anyway, look like they'll probably come together in the second half. So that, that gives us a, a pretty dour outlook before the end of the year. Um, but I should make the point, you know, that, that basically this is the, these are the dynamics now in play permanently. Um, I see this happening year after year after year from here, you know, not without interruption, stimulus episodes, little little comebacks in various markets, little mean reversions, little moments of pent-up demand, you name it. Uh, but and, and rest assured that everyone will think this time it's back on. Yes. And, and, and maybe they will, but, but it doesn't look like it. As far as we can tell, now it's looking like it's too far. The, the avalanche has started. You know, yeah. the snowball, you know, when it was little, yeah, you could have stood in front of it and stopped it. It's yeah. now going to take, if you try and stand in front of it. No, no, but, but they will be forced to keep throwing lifelines to it. Yes. As we discussed, stimulus will be about stopping it sinking too fast. So, and that, that could be overdone from time to time. You know, you might get a lot of infrastructure in a short period of time, which would be enough to juice demand for six months. Yeah. Um, and and actually, on the on the property developers, they're effectively government utilities now. Is what we're saying is that they're just going to be drip fed enough debt to keep the keep building and doing the stuff they've they've already said they're going to do. Um, yeah. yeah, because you, you know, if I looked at these companies, and let's say they had, let's say you wiped out their entire debt tomorrow, you just said no debt for this company; it's all gone. There's still enough liabilities in terms of what they owe all their suppliers and all that type of stuff, plus what they owe all their customers. For you to be a little bit nervous about investing in it, even if you had zero debt, you know, yeah. on those things, you'd be like, oh, "Do I really want to? Do I really want to put money into that thing? You know, or are they just going to rack up?" So, so yeah. So there's they, they are. I mean, we've spoken about for for years about being them un, uninvestable, but yeah, now they're they're literally a a government. Um, they're, they're effectively already been bailed out. You know, the only reason they're yeah. alive now is because the government has said that they're going to keep. Dripping this debt to them. Well, it's it's a political move now, just just mm -hmm. to to well, political and economic, uh, in multi-dimensionally political, in the sense that they can't allow all these Chinese households to be dudded on apartments yeah. they bought. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, and and, it, and it'll be one thing if you're saying, oh, well, there's all these people who put five percent deposits down, and actually we might need to help bail those guys out. But it's not that. It's there's all these departments that just haven't been built yet that we just need to yeah. keep, keep these companies alive until. Because it's one thing to say, Dave, you know, here you go, here's your five percent deposit back, but because the, the property company fell over and we'll, we're going to bail you out. But it's a different yeah. thing to say, you know. And this is where, this is where the Ponzi element of this comes in as well, because you know what they used to do was have the new flush of sales coming in um, that enabled to to build the backlog, the backlog of staff. 
exactly. while, while they were siphoning off, you know, that billion dollar lifestyle, but the sales are all crashing. Yeah. So the top of the Ponzi is, is like emptying. And so the government's slowly starting to tip money in there to stop it actually completely unwinding. So, um, so what that amounts to, if we flop over and look at iron ore ba uh, balance and supply, you know, either via iron ore cap or falling fundamental demand, it's some kind of, you know, 50, 100 million tonne iron ore surplus, I think, if you, if you take today as, uh, as a balanced market, say, which is probably, you know, roughly where it's been at about 100 bucks, um, you know, that you you describe that as relatively balanced, I think. So, so you know that that's that's materially weak, uh, and is enough to see, you know, the price looking to find, you know, the the highest cost marginal producer in the iron ore market, like looking to shake out some expensive, some expensive production. Um, you know that that that's probably. 80 bucks is where it starts to happen for, you know, more expensive Chinese output. Well, well, yeah, but and then you run in as well into, like, there's game theory in here as well, isn't it? Because China's, um, you know, obviously having a lot of problems in terms of its, uh, uh, its trade policies with others and, and, and blockages and, and all these types of things. Um, and, and it's got designs on Taiwan and, and, you know, there's, there's, there's this issue about, yeah, from a political and geopolitical sense, does China want its iron ore mines to, to, to all close up and, and be reliant, more reliant now on, on other countries? Or would they actually prefer to lose a little bit of money in um, by, by propping some of these things up as well and, and, and letting some, some mines go off in, in Brazil or Australia? And you yes. know, I argue that that's a, that's a bit of a problem <coughs> as well that, you know, that's that might be the top of the cost curve, but but there might be some uneconomic, some people that are yeah, willing. Yeah, maybe, especially since you know they're clearly at least preparing for the possibility of war. Mm. You know that that may be part of their calculus. That's possible. Um, so so we see a surplus um, and therefore falling prices. Now, once you go out to the medium term over the next three years. And I guess that's long enough to be long term. It just gets worse and worse. So uh, yeah, we've had about a twenty million ton expansion this year in supply. Next year is more like forty. Um, the year after, it, it's another forty. But then you've got to throw in Simandu in Africa, which is ninety. Uh, now, whenever that comes on, twenty five, twenty six, maybe that's twenty twenty seven. But the point is, that's a lot more iron ore, like that's coming. You know, it's nearly 200 million tonnes coming over the next three years. And if this thesis plays out, you're going to see Chinese steel production fall at roughly, probably at the rate that we've already seen over the last three years, you know, maybe 20 million, 15, 20 million tonnes a year. So by the time you get to all of this new iron ore, you will have lost another 50, 60 a million tons of Chinese output. Now, some of that may be offset elsewhere, but not much. Um, uh, and, you know, so you're already creeping up to a, like 100 million tons of iron ore that you won't need over the next three years on top of the surplus we see in the second half before you get this other 200 million tons coming in. And so it's just a very nasty outlook over the next three to five years. And then, 
if this Chinese development model is is going through this big adjustment, then it just keeps going, roughly like what happened to iron ore through the 1990s uh, after the Japan booms, where it just kept falling. And I think it originally bottomed out at what twelve bucks or something. Mm. So inflation adjusted is probably more like twenty. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, but but you know it's crazy low prices. Right. Now, there's just one more kind of thing I've thrown in here, which you could have put in demand, but it's an important um, swing factor, uh, and that is this: you know, there there is some weirdness going on in the steel scrap market and steel recycling, and it's quite big in China these days. Like you can see the chart; that's millions of tons of recycled steel, which obviously doesn't require iron ore. Uh, and you can see, like, it grew really fast up until COVID, um, uh, went wild during COVID because demand for steel was so crazy during the, the COVID stimulus. And But it's really come off hard since 2020. And um, this has absorbed a lot of the impact of everything that we've been discussing over the last two years. This, is, this has been like an escape valve for iron ore. Without this, iron ore would already be trading at $50. Like, this is, what have we got the peak there of output? I can't read that. I think it's like 40 or 50 million tonnes of steel here that's been absorbed from the peak to the, to the trough. Um, uh, like, it's weird. It's caused, driven to some extent by steel scrap being more expensive than iron ore because there's just not enough of it at the moment. Nobody, I haven't read a convincing argument as to why so it's a bit more expensive to produce and i think you know the energy global energy shocks have played a role in this as well because recycling yes. steel uses electricity when you say it's more expensive it's not more expensive to make steel from it's, it's much cheaper to make steel from from recycled steel than what it is from the raw inputs but the issue is that most of that cost is electricity yeah yeah and so that's where as you said when electricity's prices of like and just security of electricity is an issue you can yeah. see some reason for saying okay let's shut down some of these things and, and just take the raw iron ore yeah but as a as an overall yeah it doesn't make sense no and this runs completely counter to the last five-year plan as well which mm. actually said by 2023 i think it was or 2024 they wanted to have this at 300 million tons now that's way more way down at I can't read that 150 or 180, 160, 160, something like that. Like this is supposed to be far higher in terms in central planning terms, but I think they've been mugged by the energy shock. Um, so you know, China's had to dramatically expand its thermal coal output over the last two or three years, and and it's had energy rationing, even they've had to do reform, all sorts of stuff. So I think it's related to that. Um, so I, I do wonder if as the price of thermal coal comes down, um, and it's got another leg down coming, it hasn't fallen all the way yet, it's back to like about 150 I think, um, you know, those, those are still insane prices. Um, as the world adjusts to the Ukraine circumstance over the year, you know, in the next year or two, uh, and gas and, and, and coal, are, which are plentiful, um, but they, you know, if you once you re-establish security of supply, those prices will keep coming down, and this should rebound. So 
Ultimately, this should be another risk factor for even more pressure on pig iron and iron ore supply. But for the time being, it's actually worked in, in um, iron ore demand's favour as these you know real headwinds have, have come to bear. So I think we're going to throw to, to you, Sam, are we? We'll be back again shortly. If you like what you're hearing but want a low-cost passive option, Nucleus Wealth is the first to offer passive direct indexing in Australia. The first generation of passive investing was index funds. The next gen was ETFs. Now direct indexing is here with significantly more customization and control. The benefit of direct indexing is you can add or subtract investment themes, and we have almost 100 different options to choose from. For example, you could buy an international share direct index portfolio that excludes fossil fuels and arms manufacturers and has a tilt towards cybersecurity and cloud computing. Alternatively, you could buy a portfolio with no screens and an extra exposure to nuclear power and defense contractors. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. So now we have our question of the week. This is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. So the question for this week is, is this finally the end of the Chinese construction bubble? So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of our other viewers over the coming days. And now we've got the investment implications. Yeah, so I might, I might start with the um, that's just the overall part, and then I'll kick back to you, David. But the, the overall part, how do you play this? So if so, <laughs> if you believe the story, um, what is what is the way to play this? And there's there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, yeah, we're positioned within some of our equity portfolios for for um, uh, being being effectively shorted by 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 not owning the stocks. Um, in we do have some um, some hedge fund products we run for. Um, for, for wholesale investors where we, we sort of play around with some of the option strategies and we look at shorting and, and things like that. And it's, I guess it's worth noting that actually options are, well, prices have been going up a little bit recently, but they're actually still quite historically cheap. So, that, so, so options is, 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 has been a nice way to play it rather than rather than through sort of trying to short these things. But um, yeah, I might kick over to you first, Dave, on, on your thoughts on investment implications and then we can talk about, you know, how, how we can do this individually. Mm, so... <clears throat> so we're, we're entering a seasonally weak period traditionally for iron ore over the next kind of two months, ten weeks. Uh, so my feeling is we're going to get a pretty decent downdraft uh, through that. Um, you know, that that's really a down payment on what is going to become a cost curve shakeout for iron ore for many, many years, I think. So, you know, that just means... You keep grinding lower to the to the to the the highest cost marginal producer until they cut their production uh, and go out of business, uh, and then you shunt lower to the next one, and so the price just has to keep shunting down. And, and the amount of iron ore we're talking about rationalising out of the global economy over the next five to ten years, you know, it's in it's in the multiple hundreds of millions of tons. So it you know, it's going to go low, and we're going to see some 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 pretty big producers uh, pushed out of the market eventually. Um, I think most of the dynam these dynamics apply equally to coke and coal, though I don't think it will be uh, as bad uh, because uh, you know some of the rising powers in steel like India uh, actually need coke and coal 
they don't have much of it. Um, whereas they have plenty of iron ore, and they're not going to save iron ore. But but they will help on on coking coal. So uh, you know it's a it's a more multi dimensional story in that sense. Um, in macro terms for Australia, it, this is a just a beautiful rerun of the 2015 experience where. Uh, you know, which was basically the last time Xi Jinping put China through a property correction. You know, on that occasion, he panicked and it was cyclical. He managed to revitalise it. And you never know, maybe he can do it again. I just don't think so. You never, uh, you can't write it off as a, an upside risk. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that experience was iron ore tumbling to like $37 only briefly before kind of rebounding and hovering around 60, um, which, you know, absolutely smashed the federal budget. It demolished nominal growth in Australia, um, ripped national in income to shreds, um, uh, ushered in 10 years of, of weak wages and, and um, you know, an extraordinary low inflation period. Uh, and that, that all comes with this again. Only this time, I think it takes longer and it stays lower, lower for longer. So that's much more painful uh, over the longer term, much more difficult. Uh, so, you know, that's falling living standards, basically. It's what you get out of that. Um, for Australia. For Australia, yes. Um, so, you know, what will authorities do? How, how will they react? Well, they'll probably be forced to raise taxes, for instance, to fill the, you know, deficit whole uh that's you know one way that that this trickles into the real economy and, and living standards fall is you've got less income as well as you know less lower pay rises and a lower stock market and a weaker jobs market um i expect they'll probably do what they do no matter what happens these days in good or bad and that is probably raise immigration even higher um, so that will ensure that nearly all of this adjustment, this income adjustment, will fall on workers rather than capital. Uh, and so, you know, you can mount a case that we'll have extremely weak wages over the next decade, five to ten years. Uh, inflation will be weaker on the back of that, you know, with perhaps the exception of rents, you know, which will be driven wild by ongoing immigration, presuming presuming that's the way the government go, is going and, and you know, I, I don't know, it's it's so addicted to to this particular lever and the media is so hooked on it and the, the narrative is so gaslit and watertight that um, I, I, I guess it will continue. But what it does mean is um, Australian interest rates will fall more than elsewhere. You could take that as, as a... Uh, you know, a, a prompt to buy Australian property. I'm, I'm sure Chinese certainly will, um, and and others, you know, may as well. You'll have falling interest rates and immigration driving lots of demand. Um, but I think the really big, you know, kind of lever of adjustment in in this is the Australian dollar. This is a weak, a great weak Australian dollar story. Um, and I've been shopping around for a few weeks, you know, this, this narrative that, uh, you know, this could, could lead to a kind of 90s rerun where the Australian dollar fell into the 40 cents ranges, you know, because not only have you get, are you going to have this unwind of 
Chinese commodity demand a la Japan, post-Japan in 1989. As you did in 19, through the 1990s, you'll have a very strong US dollar, uh, you know, as, uh, as it's, you know, technology firms all dominated the internet, but in this case, it'll be artificial intelligence. And so you have this kind of nice analogy for that period uh, that could lead to an extremely weak Australian dollar. And so, you know, the way to play that, I guess, is to have your assets offshore. Um, let's talk, talk quickly about iron oil, a couple of different ways you can play it. So as, as we look at this from a portfolio perspective, so um, so you have an equities portfolio, you can just get rid of iron ore, okay? So now you've, you know, you probably, if, if, if we're right, you, your portfolio is going to outperform in terms of getting rid of the, the iron ore. And it's a big part of the Australian market. Um, so, uh, you know, there's ways you can use tilts and screens in ours, but, you know, within our own portfolios, our own active portfolios, um, you know, we, we're knocking these stocks out at the moment. Uh, but the issue for there is, say, um, okay, let's say the whole market's going down. Then yeah okay you might the market might be down ten percent you might be only down three or four percent because you didn't have iron ore but you're still down and so the question for people then is saying well within say hedge funds type strategies what are the types of things you can do you can do sort of long and short so so it's quite a you know some of the trades we we do within these types of strategies is okay we'll go out and buy all the stocks or a bunch of stocks in the index uh, at least a representative sample and then we'll we'll short the index itself. With the view that okay, in that case, if the if the market um, falls ten ten percent and and the stocks we've got because they don't have iron ore only fall three or four percent, then you actually get a, a you know a six or seven percent return on on that type of thing. Um, there are issues sort of rolling contracts and all that type of stuff like that, but you know that's that's a sort of uh, an easier way to go than trying to short the stocks. We we find anyway easier than trying to short the stocks themselves. That can be risky in terms of if you're short the stocks, um, you know and, and you, you get squeezes of some sort, and let's say that you do get a Chinese um, stimulus package, and all of a sudden the the market takes off, and and you're forced to you might be stopped out or, or forced to sell it at, at rates, or, or have to meet sort of quite a significantly higher collateral um, issues. Whereas um, typically in the you know when you when you're shorting the market and, and long a basket of stocks just without the ones you want, um, you don't have as much of that issue. Um, the cost is usually a fair bit less as well. Um, you can play option strategies, so that's that's um, we, we're certainly doing that within ours as well. So so options, you know, uh, you hear about the VIX index, and effectively uh, think about the VIX index as, as a cost for options. When it's low, it's sort of sub fifteen, um, it's it's much more attractive to be doing option strategies. When uh, it gets high, um, it's less like you know it's it's, it's less um, useful. So the types of things we do on that is is um, it seems like uh, I mean you can just buy put options. Uh, the problem with that is uh, you, you you're paying away on a put option. There's like a, it's basically like an insurance cost. So so you can only run put options um, for so long. You need, you want the timing as well as the um, the event uh, when you, when you're running those. Um, you can do there are some strategies you can do to to, to lessen that that that. So there's um uh yeah for for one client in particular we're running some put spread spread strategies um, and with the idea that. Um, you know, you can you can lower the cost of the options and give yourself a little bit more leverage. Um, but also within those, you know, you might think about it as being okay. I've got a, um, uh, you know, within your portfolio, you might go okay. I, I could go out and I could I could run this some long short on on a million dollars worth of um, securities, or actually actually just go out and buy options and 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 run something on fifty thousand dollars or 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 a hundred thousand um, dollars with a view that okay, if I was going to 
that one might go to zero or it might you know triple but it's um but it's it's a it's a much more leveraged play so i'm, I'm going to do that with a very small part of the the overall um portfolio so there's those ones um so yeah and, and then obviously just being short yeah being short yeah, these stocks so um yeah a number of different ways you can play this and actually look to try and try and make money from these if you think that it, it's right keeping in mind that the strategies around that and happy if, you know have a chat to us about um you know what we can do within our own portfolios but the idea very much is that um it really depends upon how how much you believe the story how worried you, you are about um the opposite happening and making sure that you're you're not gonna if if you do get some sudden announcement from china and even if they're even if the announcements themselves aren't um genuine and or, or not going to be followed through the market can act like they're going to, uh, you know, they're, they're genuine. They're going to be followed through for, for for a while, and and you want to make sure that you're not going to get stopped out, or you're not going to run into to, to risks on on those on that front while it's happening. So yeah, so it's a it's a quick few quick investment ideas about how we're looking at it within our own portfolios. Yeah, and Damo, I'd just like to add to that as well uh, for those long term, uh, long only investors uh, within Nucleus Wealth. You know, you mentioned within the active portfolios, we are taking uh, taking these views into more, account. But say for bonds. the passive, yeah, yeah, for for the passive portfolios, if you're just buy and hold, uh, yeah. you can uh, uh, take advantage of the screens or the tilts, so you can include or include uh, exclude certain uh, themes or stocks. Yeah. So uh, yeah, with the with the tilts, if you've got the opposite view, if you don't think iron ore is going to fall, uh, you could add in the Gix sector uh, materials, and then also with the with the uh, exclusions, uh, you could if you think iron ore is going to fall, you could uh, exclude Gix sector materials there as well. Yeah. Um, uh, one other thing I actually did want to say as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention that you can play the you can play the 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 iron ore market itself in terms of in terms of will the iron ore price go up or down. The issue um, you can often get from stocks is you can get a more leveraged play on that if you think it's a longer term issue. So we we think it's a longer term issue for it, and the market will come to that realization. Is that effectively um, you know, if you're playing the iron ore price for saying okay, I think the iron ore price in six months time is going to be lower, and I'm, I'm going to take a bet on the the individual stock. You're sort of exposed to one time point, whereas when you're buying a, a, a or shorting, you know, a Fortescue or a BHP or someone like that, um, you're effectively looking at the the long term. You know, if we're expecting iron ore price to fall and stay low for a considerable period of time. Uh, when that gets discounted and added into the stock price, that can often get you more leverage than um, uh, than just just doing it on the on the raw commodity price. And so, yeah, just think about that in terms of the risk. You know, every, everything with these is all about sizing. It's about saying. You know, how big of a how big of a risk do I want to take? I want to make sure if things go the wrong way, they're not not too exposed, but I want to get you know you know maximum leverage for for, for minimum upside. So minimum yeah. downside. Sorry. That's one, Damon. Uh, so I just want to put it out there to the to our listeners and clients. You know, we really we really like what we do. Uh, we think there's lots of value in it, and uh, you know, if uh, our clients and listeners are getting value as well, I uh, would really appreciate if you can just click subscribe or hit the like button. You know, that's going to help us uh, grow our influence and uh, and get this message out to more people. Uh, so yeah, just uh, click click subscribe now. We'd really appreciate that. And if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode as well, uh, it'd be great if you can share it with them. So that almost wraps us up for today. So Damo, Dave, thank you again. Uh, valuable content. I'm sure lots of people are going to resonate with what you guys have got to say. 
and uh, the story will continue to unfold, and I'm sure we'll be uh, talking more about this in the future. Cool. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on this podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. If you do have any ideas, drop it in the comment section below or send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. So that wraps us up for today. So for myself, Damien, Dave, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.